This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Do you find yourself juggling multiple websites and clinical tools as you care for your patients? NeoCarePal is a resource providing access to multiple clinical calculators in just one place. To learn more, visit nicuconnections.com backslash NeoCarePal. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. It is Sunday. Journal Club is upon us. Stephanie, how are you? Um, I'm doing well. I'm excited about Journal Club. You picked way too many journals, especially <laughs> since uh, you have been so busy this week. That's right. My wife and I welcomed a baby girl on Monday, and um, <laughs> yeah. it's been uh, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, but uh, baby or no baby, Journal Club. Journal uh, Club it is. And you couldn't help but stuff your folder full of articles. Well, there's a lot of downtime. So, <laughs> and I'm thankfully not working this week. So, uh, I have no excuse. I guess, um, except for all uh, the snuggling and cuddling that you do. That's right. Even though that's really not true, I did procrastinate for this journal club. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So, um, we have a very, um, interesting sets of, of articles. We also have an interesting segment this week where we're going to welcome uh, Dr. Jordan from Minnesota, who's going to tell us a little bit about something that her and her team have worked on to try to improve rates of donor breast milk in her community. Fascinating stuff. Um, and as we've said before on the show, we're going to try to feature more newsy type of content like this mm -hmm. on, on Journal Club episodes. So if you're working on something cool and it's not a study and it doesn't get published, then we feel, Daphne and I, that it still should be celebrated. We so, still want to hear about it. Yeah. So when uh, the Next Society meets with the FDA, that's that's mm -hmm. an important thing that they're doing. And uh, it doesn't really come out in uh, in JAMA or something. And yet it's helping us moving forward. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to talk about with Dr. Jordan is another thing that helps that community specifically and could inspire others to do the same. And it's not going to be a, a randomized clinical trial. So we should still have a, a venue for, for these um, things to be celebrated. So... That is the um, that is going to be uh, part of the of the journal club today. Uh, forget anything, or should we just get started? What do you think? Well, we should remind people about the conference coming up, but then we should mm -hmm. get started. Yeah, Delphi conference. I was supposed to finalize the agenda. We have um, a great lineup coming up. I'm going to give people who are listening to the podcast a sneak preview. Um, we're going to have uh, a star-studded lineup. We have Dr. Pia Wintermark that we featured on the Journal Club not too long ago. We're going to have Dr. Ryan McAdams. We're going to have uh, Kimberly Novad from uh, Soulslight, Dr. Atul Malhotra from, from Australia. 
We have Dr. Guillermo Santana. We have so many people coming in, Dr. Henry Lee, Dr. Uh, Terry Ender. Um, believe me, this is going to be, and we have obviously our TEDx speakers uh, mm -hmm. this year. Uh, some physicians there, Dr. Anisha Beer is coming, um, and many more. So I'm not going to reveal too much, but there's big names. And uh, I have to finish putting this agenda together so that people can take a look and start signing up. But this is very exciting. And we're working on it like around the clock. So just, the clock. just to have people here, down here with us and learning and sharing. And so we're, we're pumped. We're pumped. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. So should we begin? Let us. Let us. So the first paper, the paper that I wanted to talk about uh, today is a paper that was published in the Archive of Disease and Childhood and is called Hydrocortisone and Very Preterm Neonates for BPD Prevention, Meta-Analysis and Effect Size Modifiers. I know we're talking a lot about hydrocortisone, but this is a great meta-analysis. All the big names are on it. Christy Waterberg is on there. Olivier Beau is on there. And uh, first author is Danielle DeLuca, which, um, if I remember correctly, um, we have uh, mentioned on the show several times. So um, the, the, I'm going to skip the, the background, but the, the, really the study looks at whether systemic hydrocortisone started in the first two weeks of life, in the first 15 days of life, uh, aimed at preventing BPD and other adverse uh, outcomes, um, does the, is, is, that, is there a signal there, basically, right? Uh, does systemic hydrocortisone in the first 15 days of life prevent BPD or other adverse outcome? And then looking at potential effect size modifiers. Now, this was a systematic review, meta-analysis approach. It followed uh, the PRISMA guidelines, and it included RCTs following the fulfilling the following criteria, which are uh, obviously published papers, peer-reviewed. Uh, the neonates in question had to be 30 weeks of gestation or less, or um, 1,000 grams or less. They looked at the administration of systemic hydrocortisone uh, at any dose, and it had to be done, like, like we said, before the 15th day postnatally, aimed towards prevention of BPD, right? Um, and obviously, there are studies that look at adrenal insufficiency, and they mentioned that in the background, but that was the criteria. Now, they were ineligible studies if they used hydrocortisone for BPD prevention in combination with other drugs, um, or if they investigated hydrocortisone for reasons other than BPD, like hemodynamics, for example, as we mentioned. So um, the results are very interesting. Uh, it involves 2,193 infants, and that is spanning seven trials, generally, as they mentioned, of good quality. And I'm going to go through some of the results uh, because that's quite interesting. So hydrocortisone itself did not reduce BPD. The risk ratio was 0.84, and um, the trials showed significant heterogeneity. But it's the following results that to me were quite interesting. So mitoral regression uh, showed that the effect size was inversely associated with the duration of treatment. And so a reduction in BPD was obtained with 10 to 12 days duration of treatment. And that was statistically significant. So should like is there a certain time that we should leave, right? We try to wean as, as much as quick as possible sometimes, but maybe not. Maybe we should leave it for a certain period of time. Another interesting factor was that the greater um, the percentage of neonates with chorioamnionitis enrolled in the trial, the greater the effects on BPD reduction. So these babies that are born with chorio do benefit seemingly more from, from the medication. Hydrocortisone did reduce mortality significantly 
And um, this finding did not show any significant heterogeneity between the trial. The reduction in mortality tended to be greater with increasing percentages of males enrolled in the trial. And in terms of other effect size modifiers, they could not find one. They have a long list. I'll let you go and review it. Looking at other factors that are interesting, maybe NEC. And figure three of the paper shows that NEC was significantly reduced by the use of hydrocortisone. And there were neither significant heterogeneity nor effect size modifiers uh, for, um, for that finding. Another important comorbidity is IVH. And so IVH was kind of interesting because they looked at the effect size of the use of hydrocortisone for IVH and PVL. And it was not significant, but it was close to being significant. Like the, the, the forest, um, the, the, the bar like hugs the, the non-significance line, but doesn't, uh, but, but just touches it. And what's interesting is that, um, it, uh, for IVH controls are favored, but for PVL, the hydrocortisone group was favored. None of them were significant, by the way. I want to remind people of that, but interestingly enough that it had an opposite type mm -hmm. of uh, response. It was, it was going in opposite direction, meaning IVH favored the controls and PVL favored the hydrocortisone. In terms of some respiratory stuff that they do mention, reintubation, duration of oxygen support, or ventilation were not analyzed, despite that being one of the original plans because they didn't have enough data. And so in conclusion, this meta-analysis of seven trials, more than 2,000 neonates, shows that hydrocortisone did not reduce BPD. And I think what they're saying in the conclusion is exactly where I land. Hydrocortisone showed benefits on some secondary outcome, okay. that is mortality and neck. Thus, it can be considered on a case-by-case -case evaluation for these purposes. And there are some potential effect size modifier for mortality and BPD, which should be addressed in future exploratory uh, and explanatory trials. So a very interesting paper, uh, a, a, li a little baby boy with choreo. Matt, you might want to look at yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I, we just keep getting that more and more. We can't not, there are no two babies that are the same. And we're just looking, hoping, praying for something to be protocolized that we can just give to all the babies and they'll all be better. But um, I think looking at these groups, breaking them down and finding out, I, I, I mean, there are just groups that seems to help. And maybe because we just hit you said, like you said, a little boy with choreo and it had happened to really, really help, you know. Um, but uh, I think we will learn over time that our yeah, we're protocols will be multi-linear. We're, we're, you know? we're still thinking like we're looking for a vaccine, right? We're that's looking right. for a vaccine for these diseases that's like, hey, I just give it to everybody and it just takes the, away. takes care of it. <laughs> but, it's, but it's not how it works. So yeah. Fascinating paper. Fascinating paper. And I just, it's such a reminder about the mother-infant dyad and not just that, but also this is just, it keeps coming up how inflammation in the body, it's just inflammation everywhere, right? So those are the kids that are really at risk and um, those are the kids we have to be, I think, the mm -hmm. most cautious with. Very interesting. Yeah. Why are you taking um, us next? Well, I had an interesting paper that I wanted to look at. It did not answer all of my questions, but I, <laughs> it was an interesting <laughs> paper nonetheless. This actually came um, uh, from BMC Pediatrics um, out of China, um, and it was factors influencing C-reactor protein status on admission in neonates after birth. And I will preface this by saying, obviously, 
CRPs, depending on where you work, are either in favor or out of favor. <laughs> um, but I just thought it was an interesting. And since uh, and since the paper is coming out of China, I'm going to mention something there. We are looking to expand the podcast in Mandarin. So if, if yes. you know somebody who is of Chinese descent or who is Chinese or who speaks Mandarin, um, please let us know. Yeah, that's right. Thank you for that. And so what they did, basically, this was a retrospective cross-sectional uh, analysis of 872 neonates born at Xiang, I think that's how you say it, hospital in Central South University between January 2020 and December 2020 that were admitted to the neonatal ICU within two hours of birth. So basically, all these infants had CRPs measured on admission. And then they basically looked back at what were their other characteristics. So they had a total of 820 neonates enrolled, and the neonates were categorized into two groups based on whether they not they had a high CRP, which is greater than or equal to 8 milligrams per liter, um, or a low CRP, which was less than the 8 milligrams per liter group. Okay? In the more than 8, more than or equal to 8 group, there were 163. There were 98 males, 65 females. The mean gestational age was 37.7 plus or minus three weeks. And in the low CRP group, there were 657 cases, most of the cohort, 365 males, 292 females with a mean gestational age of 35. So they found statistical differences in gestational age, birth weight, premature rupture of membranes uh, greater than, uh, sorry, not premature, prolonged rupture of membranes greater than or equal to 18 hours, and antenatal steroids, placenta previa, maternal autoimmune diseases, intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, mode of delivery, they were specifically looking at cesarean uh, delivery, and um, MAS between the two groups. So gestational age and birth weight in CRP uh, greater than greater than or equal to eight group was significantly higher than, uh, sorry, the gestational age and birth weights were larger in the um, greater than eight group. So Gestational ages and birth weights were lower in the less than eight group, which was interesting. Um, and the infinite incidence rate of CRP greater than or equal to eight was significantly higher when neonates were exposed to prolonged rupture of membranes greater than 18 hours, when they were exposed to maternal autoimmune diseases and meconium aspiration, other things about in- inflammation there. And they were significantly lower when newborns were exposed to antenatal steroids, placenta previa, um, and cesarean delivery, as well as intrahepatic cholestasis. Then they looked at a univariate logistic regression, and they again found that gestational age and birth weight were positively associated with a CRP greater than or equal to 8, and the risk of the CRP greater than or equal to 8 increased by 26% for each week increase in gestational age, and this was statistically significant. Antenatal steroids, placenta previa, and cesarean delivery were negatively associated still with CRP greater than or equal to 8, um, with a 53% uh, reduction uh, for antenatal steroids, an 82% uh, reduction for placenta previa, and a 69% reduction um, in motor delivery or C-section. Um, and then uh, prolonged rupture membranes greater than 18 hours was positively associated with an increased risk of CRP by 77% or an increased risk of elevated CRP, I should say. Maternal autoimmune disease also positively associated with a, th- uh, a 367% uh, 
And uh, meconium aspiration also positively associated with CRP greater than or equal to 8. They went ahead and did a multivariate analysis. And again, the results showed that larger gestational age and maternal autoimmune disease had a significant association with a CRP greater than or equal to 8. And these were stable even when adjusting for the other confounding factors. Cesarean delivery, at the same time, had, a, again, a negative correlation with a CRP greater than 4 or equal to 8. And then um, they actually took a little closer look at gestational age and CRP, and they have a really nice graph there that I put in my folder for you. Um, but they did a kind of logistic regression, and um, they found what they called an inflection point. So it's really kind of the the nadir at 33.9 weeks. So on the left side of the inflection point, so basically 25 weeks to 33.9 weeks, um, the younger the, the babies... Re- yeah, the relationship is linear. That's right. And the younger babies had higher CRPs and they kind of downtrend to 33 uh, weeks. Um, and so they said it was reduced by 28% with each week of gestational age. And then, so it was lowest at 33.9 weeks. And then from 33.9 weeks to 42 weeks, you saw the inverse uh, is true. So the CRPs were more likely to be elevated the older the baby was with an increase by 61% with each week of gestational age. So what I really wanted at the end of the paper was them to tell me which kids actually had sepsis and infection, but they didn't tell us that, uh, unfortunately. And and there's Uh, probably people um, that have been screaming in their headphones since you began to like, why would you get a CRP on a newborn? <laughs> and admission? Well, they wanted to study the CRP. That's why they did it. Um, I know. And there are still units across the world that are using CRPs on a regular basis. So and listen, listen, it's, it's, it's the CRPs live with the residuals. We all agree that maybe we shouldn't do it. And yet we all still have them once in a while. So, yeah. But I thought this was interesting, and it's just a reminder of what the CRP even is. And it's a marker of inflammation, not necessarily infection. Um, But it was interesting to see which of what things, you know, uh, bumped up the CRP. We were just talking about this in the unit about CRPs and vaccination. Um, But it was interesting. Yeah. and we were able to put in a plug about our Mandarin podcast. That's right. That was not intentional, by the way. But uh, yeah. Um, you know, um, I think um, we will have um, our friends from Minnesota joining us soon. So I'll just try to squeeze in one more paper before then. It's a paper I found in pediatrics, and it's called Transition to Adulthood for Extremely Preterm Survivors. Uh, first author is Lauren Pigden. And it's a very interesting study because, you know, um, I tell this parent sometimes that how our baby is going to grow up as adults, we almost don't know because our field has changed so much in the past years that um, we're getting information really continuously. Um, we are um, getting information on the babies that were born maybe 80s who are now like in their mid-30s and closer maybe to 40 years old. But this paper is saying, well, what about the babies who were born in the post-surfactant era, which really is the time point in where um, we feel like there was a revolution in the field of neonatology with improved survival and so on. And they're wondering how uh, extremely preterm slash extremely low birth weight uh, survivors 
transition into adulthood compared to term-born controls in areas such as education, employment, financial independence, and health. I thought that was a very, uh, I was very curious to read this paper because it's something that uh, I ask myself uh, very frequently. This was a prospective longitudinal cohort study that was done in Australia, specifically in the region of Victoria between uh, 1991 and 1992. Uh, they had matched term-born controls to the preterm slash low birth weight infants, and they assessed them at 25 years and they looked at educational attainment, employment, financial status, a romantic partnership, living arrangements, health, and risk-taking behaviors. Uh, the results are quite interesting. There's data from 165 uh, preemies and 127 control participant. Um, and I'm going to go through uh, the, the, the principal uh, themes. Uh, the first one they mentioned is educational achievement, and they're showing that um, there's very little difference between the groups in the proportion of children who actually uh, completed high school. Um, and there was evidence predominantly in the unadjusted analysis for uh, more preterm survivors compared with control attending uh, technical college and fewer attending university or obtaining uh, a bachelor's degree. But the confidence interval, even for that, were quite wide. So I think overall, this this was this was fairly positive. Uh, in terms of employment, uh, financial status, there's really they didn't see any difference in the in in what was the main source of income between preterms and full term. Um, there was an indication that maybe preemies are still reliant a little bit more on government support, pension, or allowance compared to controls. But um, that first of all weakened significantly when they started excluding babies with major neurodevelopmental disabilities. So I think that was that was quite interesting as well. Um, and um, very little difference between terms and preterms uh, on the proportion who were um, in paid employments. Um, so, so that was quite nice. I forgot to mention that the preemies that we're talking about, on average, were about like 26, 27 weeks. That was the median gestational age. So not, not big preemies, you know. Um, in terms of romantic relationship, pregnancy, parenthood, living situation, um, no difference in the proportion of children living independently. But there was evidence that more preemies, um, more former preemie young adults had actually never moved out of the parental home, going back to this sort of uh, fragile, maybe uh, infant syndrome. I don't know if that's related. I have no idea, but I think that's interesting. Um, and there was a weak evidence that uh, preterms and low birth weight inf adults, former low birth weight uh, babies and, and adults were less likely to have been married or cohabitating, maybe having to do with if you're not really moving out mm -hmm. of your parents' home, that might be an impediment for uh, for many, God knows. Um, interestingly enough, when they looked at mental health, they didn't find differences in the proportion who had experienced psychiatric or mental health problems alone or over the previous 10 years. And I think that's, that's tremendous because you might think that could there be a stigma of prematurity, something like that, but to, to, to read this was quite good. Uh, good for our preemies, no difference in uh, smoking rates, but preemies were less likely as adults to have uh, ever smoked compared with controls, and they were also less likely to binge uh, to binge drink alcohol and try street drugs. So you see, you see, there's there some. Uh, That's very good. Um, they looked at interpersonal relationships, and they showed that they they really did not see differences between reported problems. Uh, getting along with colleagues, fellow students, adults with whom they leave or they live, or neighbors. So, so they didn't have issues making 
relationships and in terms of life satisfaction, um, they our former premies did not feel more lonely uh, or had difference in their current satisfaction with education, work, financial situation, housing, social life, or relationship. Something that we talk about all the time where what is the quality of life for our premies and and to hear these numbers are are quite good. Um, I think um, in summary, um, this this study indicates that survivors born preterm or extremely low birth weight uh, in the post-surfactant era, and remember it's only like from 91, babies born between 91 and 92, it's a very narrow cohort, but still go do a study with 25-year follow-up, mm-hmm. uh, are mostly transitioning satisfactorily into early adulthood. It will be important to continue to reassess this cohort as they move through their adult years to monitor changes over time. The um, EPELBW cohort, the extremely preterm, uh, extremely low birth weight cohort, uh, may be at higher risk of adverse health outcome with age, particularly cardiovascular and respiratory health based on prior studies. Um, So that's something that will require further investigation. But I think that as parents are asking us, what's in Mm -hmm. stake for my baby? This is a great study to look at. And it's actually quite positive. I I take this quite... uh, with a with an optimistic uh, turn, because I think there's a lot to be scared about, especially especially when you are looking at these babies. Like I said earlier, um, the baseline characteristics are interesting. The median gestational age was 26.6, median birth weight 880 grams. That was in 1991, by the way. Uh, 32% from multiple births, and um, yeah, so uh, yeah, only 38% received surfactants. So mm-hmm. even though they're in the post-surfactant era, they still mm-hmm. they probably wouldn't mm-hmm. match what we are doing today. So right. very interesting, I thought. Yeah. And I mean, it's totally in line with previous research about especially quality of life for for our patients. So mm-hmm. I think it's, it's nice to see that. And hopefully yeah. we'll just keep getting better and better. So there's no difference between <laughs> That's right. former preemies and their full-term cohort. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with uh, Dr. Leah Jordan uh, for uh, our next segment. This episode is proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive and female portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. To learn more, visit hcp.meadjohnson.com. So this week, we are joined by Dr. Leah Jordan, who is a neonatologist at uh, Children's Minnesota. Uh, Leah is here with us today to tell us about uh, a community initiative that uh, is quite cool. Uh, Leah, thank you for making time to be on the show with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to share with you today about a really wonderful collaborative project that we've been doing in the Twin Cities in Minnesota about donor milk use for infants of the Islamic faith. We um, recently had the blessing or approval from Islamic leaders by way of a religious ruling called a fatwa. This is a religious clarification, and their clarification for the Muslim faithful has encouraged the use of donor milk for infants, um, which is the first time in the nation that this topic has really been addressed. Yeah, that's that was very interesting, and I and I believe that um, what uh, reading some of the articles that were published on the on the subject that you guys identified um, something within your community that um, really made um, patients, families of Islamic faith, reluctant to using donor milk. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what did you guys notice and 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 how that sort of uh, led to um, you reaching out to community leaders? 
Yeah. The challenge we primarily identified was really a difficulty partnering with and communicating with Muslim families around donor milk. In the Islamic faith, there's a belief that breastfeeding a non-biological child establishes a familial relationship between the mother and the infant that she's breastfeeding. And this is really an intimate relationship that um, prohibits future marriage between her children and her milk children later in their life. With donor milk, obviously in the United States, our donor milk is pooled, it's anonymous. And so the families expressed a real worry that their child would receive this milk have these familial relationships established and not know, and that they could unintentionally marry their milk sibling later in life. And that was a really heavy um, burden and a heavy worry for these families. When I was early in my residency training and fellowship, there was certainly this recognition in the local medical community that our Muslim families tended to use donor milk differently than other families. They tended to be more reluctant and hesitant. But there was very little discussion initially about what these concerns were and um, how we as the medical team could address them, which really compounded our communication challenges, right? You can't answer a family's question if you don't know what that question or that worry is. Yeah. And I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that these are the type of issues that as a neonatologist, I would have been like, oh my God, how, how am I going to fix, how would I even fix this? And I'm amazed that you guys were able to find a path where you were able to get uh, the right people involved. And so can you tell us a little bit, how does that process look like for you to get out of your comfort zone, meaning out of the NICU and really finding the people, the, the right stakeholders, I hate that word, but the right stakeholders to actually come to the table and have a constructive conversation, really centering everything around the babies. Yeah. Some of this ended up being very serendipitous and fortuitous. So um, as a neonatology community, we started talking about this um, myself, uh, my partners from Children's Minnesota, Tom, Drs. Tom George and Dr. Ann Downey, um, and Dr. Nancy Fahim, one of our collaborators at the University of Minnesota M Health Fairview. Just kind of talking amongst ourselves, those conversations ended up kind of spilling outside of the neonatal community. So Dr. Nancy Fahim um, is also the leader or is involved in the leadership of the Minnesota Milk Bank for Babies. And through that, um, conversations also reached the Minnesota Breastfeeding Coalition. One of our key stakeholders at the Minnesota Breastfeeding Coalition is Shukri Jumale, who is my colleague at Children's Minnesota. She directs our Midwest Fetal Care Center, um, and she's the treasurer for the Minnesota Breastfeeding Coalition. Mm -hmm. And in her role at the Fetal Care Center, she had previously done work um, with the Minnesota Islamic Council around fetal surgery and actually discussing what the implications of fetal surgery are for Muslim families. And that work had been coordinated by a community health advocacy group called Brighter Health, Brighter Health Minnesota. Um, and so she roped them into this conversation and really um, just it was a gathering of people slowly but surely. Um, I love um, what you said about we can't answer parents' questions if we don't know what that question is. And there are so many things that we ask families to do, which for a variety of reasons, cultural, uh, ethnic, religious, um, educationally, that that um, is maybe in conflict with, if, with what um, they accept for their babies. Um, so I wonder kind of what advice do you have for other people who are trying to tackle the same sorts of issues in their community? Yeah, I think 
sometimes it's easier for us. We've spent so much of our lives in book knowledge um, that sometimes this cultural competency or that topic can become a list of rules or a list of almost just biases that we have about certain populations. And moving to a more anti-racist approach to these questions, I think really involves humility. It involves being willing to ask questions, even Mm -hmm. if you don't always understand where families are coming from, and being willing to to listen to what those answers are and and take them seriously. You can imagine a family in this position, they're new to the NICU, right? This conversation comes up right away. They're dealing with all of the trauma that comes along with a NICU admission, expected or unexpected. For some of the families in the Twin Cities, we have a really large Somali-American population. And so they were navigating these conversations with an interpreter or with sometimes without an interpreter and some limited mm. English proficiency. So that was really challenging for them. And they're hearing that the answer for their baby is either, um, you know, something that could cause their child to die, getting formula when they're a really high risk for necrotizing enterocolitis, or something that carries these lifelong religious implications for them. And so just taking a moment to put ourselves in their shoes and, and understand where they're coming from was really crucial. Yeah, talk about being a, between a rock and a hard place in mm-hmm. that uh, in that scenario. And so can you tell us a little bit about um, what was the response that you encounter from the community leaders? Because it does feel sometimes that if it's a religious issue, it's very inflexible, but you're you're the demonstration that it is not like that. Yeah, I want to thank the Minnesota Islamic Council for their willingness to come and sit down at a conversation that at face value felt really, you know, in conflict with their beliefs and kind of out there for them. This is a big change. Um, it was amazing to have the help of Brighter Health Minnesota and some of the other um, Somali Muslim healthcare workers who were kind of bridging the gap and um, forging those relationships with us. So we sat down at a luncheon and we talked with the Minnesota Islamic Council, the scholars that were there. We went through all of the medical benefits of donor breast milk. What is necrotizing enterocolitis? What does it look like when a baby gets necrotizing enterocolitis? We also had leaders from the Minnesota Milk Bank who talked through from you know A to Z how we screen, collect, pool, process, and test all of the milk that we get. And then we just sat around a table and talked really openly and and honestly and respectfully about what a solution would look like. And for the Muslim scholars, obviously, the medical information that we provided was new. And for the medical workers, some of the intricacies about the Islamic faith were new to us, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it just took a lot of vulnerability on everyone's parts. And that was a really incredible moment to be a part of at a time when our world feels so separate and um, divided to be able to sit with people and find a solution based in our common desire for Muslim infants to go home and survive and thrive in their lives long term. So that was a really beautiful moment. As I like to say, you created a bubble of hope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that that's kind of cool. Can you tell us a little bit since that uh, fatwa was issued? Uh, how has been how has that changed your day to day work in the NICU, uh, especially with families of uh, Islamic faith? Yeah, I will say I think many of us were hopeful that this would be the you know complete solution that we would have these perfect and easy conversations going forward with this fatwa text in hand. And it certainly has been beneficial. We have now had families come in very eager and excited to use donor milk, which feels like a very subjective change to me, but a 
a change nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some families who really want still time to think about what this new teaching means and process it with their imam and have further conversations. How did this come about? What does this mean about previous teachings? And there have been families who disagree with the um, ruling from the fatwa, and that's okay. I think that's normal for any religious ruling on any subject. Um, And so we're just trying to continue to collaborate with our partners. How can we continue to create culturally sensitive um, resources so that families in this acute situation in the NICU have the answers from their community that they want? And what's interesting about this is that it looks like from what you're describing is that this this ruling has pretty much given uh, uh, your your family's agency to to make a decision mm-hmm. without uh, without the concern too much of saying maybe I will be uh, infringing on on rules and so on. So I think that's kind of it's kind of I was not expecting this answer, but it's kind of interesting to see that then your fallback into I guess normalcy where some parents will still say no to donor milk mm-hmm. even if they're not of the most of the Islamic faith. And so I think it's kind of nice to see that yes, then. People have their opinion, and there's that uh, Gaussian curve of distribution, and that's just the way it is. It's uh, it's amazing. So I'm mm-hmm. very happy. I'm very happy to hear that. Yeah, and now that you know the question of milk kinship at least has been addressed in the text of the fatwa, I think we're seeing new questions and concerns come to the surface, and so we'll continue to answer those and and provide clarity where we can. That's amazing. Yeah, I think you've done such a neat thing. I think when we think about this topic, this umbrella term of advocacy, we think legislation and lobbying, but basically you've said this is something that is really prevalent in our community and um, it's um, impacting the care of our babies. How how can we tackle it even locally? And I think that you will see a trickle effect um, past uh, the walls of your NICU. What has that looked like? Yeah. The Brighter Health Minnesota organization that we worked with on this project um, has had an email line that people can find in all of the press releases. And within a matter of hours of the press release going live um, about the fatwa text, they had hundreds of emails. And some of those were local. Many of those were national as far away as um, Washington and other parts of the country. Um, And then the news story also got picked up by an Australian news channel and a newspaper and has made its way to an Islamic council in Australia that's now adapting um, our text of the fatwa and promoting it in their community. So we certainly have already seen this uh, beyond the walls of our um, our hospital, our state, and our community, which has been wonderful. That's amazing. Dr. Leo Jordan, thank you for making the time. We will link uh, the article describing this um, this initiative on our website and we'll leave contact information for you as well so that if people want to find out more and maybe uh, are inspired by the work that you did, uh, can actually get in touch with you. Thank you so much for being on with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, we were so uh, glad to have on Dr. Jordan. Uh, we love this new uh, news news channel uh, that we will have on on Journal Club. So we've been excited to roll that out. Yep. Now you have some more papers for us. Yeah, very um, quickly, I found this paper in the archives of these in childhood called Sustaining Inflation and Chest Compression versus mm. 3 to 1 Chest mm-hmm. Compression to Ventilation Ratio During Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation of Asphyxiated Newborn the Survive Trial, a Cluster Randomized Controlled Trial. The research question of the paper is, well, instead okay, of doing... I'm sorry. Hold on. I'm writing that one down. That's going to be a, a front runner for our favorite uh, uh, trial name. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to dampen a little bit. You while, don't... while the authors, Dr. Schmolzer and colleagues did a very nice job uh-huh. at finding Survive, it's a little bit 
capital tracted, as we say <laughs> in uh, French. Uh, it's a little bit stretched, but uh, yeah, the name sounds good. <laughs> because right. I'll the I, an asterisk. Yeah, the I and survive is a one, first of all. Mm. So uh, I don't know. I don't know. We'll put it in uh, notable mentions. But the question they're asking is saying, instead of doing three to one uh, compression to ventilation ratio, what if we did uh, sustain inflation while you're doing chest compression, right? And would that help in uh, reaching the time to reach ROSC, which is the return of spontaneous circulation? If you've done NRP, ACLS, whatever, you know what ROSC is. So this was a cluster, a cluster, a prospective cluster crossover randomized controlled trial conducted in four hospitals across Canada and Austria. They looked at babies that were born above 28 weeks of gestation, uh, requiring uh, chest compression. The exclusion were congenital anomalies um, and congenital heart disease required immediate intervention or if the parents did not consent. Uh, basically, they randomized the hospitals to either doing chest compression with sustained inflation or the three to one uh, chest compression uh, to ventilation. And then they cross them back to the other intervention with a two-month washout period to allow for retraining. And the primary intervention was the time to reach ROSC. There were some secondary outcomes. And what do we mean exactly? So the three to one, I think everybody gets it. It's like one, two, three, breathe, right? I mean, that's the that's what we currently do. But the chest compression with sustained inflation is what we're interested in. So basically, what does that look like? You put the peak infl inflation pressure, the peak inspiratory pressure at 25 to 30 centimeters of water. It's pretty high. and um, you deliver this breath for 20 seconds. Then you revert to just positive and expiratory pressure, a peep of either five to eight for one second, and then you go back for another 20 seconds of sustained inflation. And you do this uh, for um, uh, three times, and then you reassess their heart rate. Now, if after five minutes they still needed to resuscitate the baby, they would revert back to the three to one uh, chest compression to ventilation ratio. Now, interestingly enough, if you are familiar, this original power calculation looked for 200 patients to be enrolled, but then when the actual results of the sale trial, which looked at sustained inflation, actually came out, they temporarily stopped this current trial, the survive trial. They adjusted the inclusion criterias in order to account for the results of the sale trial. And if you need a, rem a reminder, the sale trial looked at sustained inflation in 23 to 26 weekers. And basically what they found was that the primary outcome, death or BPD, was actually higher in the sustained inflation group. And when they looked at death before 48 hours, it was also higher in the sustained inflation group. So that's what really led to a reframing of the, of the inclusion criteria to actually include more term baby, no, more mature babies, like 28 weeks or more. And eventually they had to stop the trial early because of funding constraints. So the poor investigators really uh, did not have an easy time uh, for something that's related to sale. It was a really stormy uh, um, research endeavor. There you go. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> only 25 infants were ended up, ended up being randomized, 11 in the sustained inflation and chest compression group, 14 in the three to one. And basically not very much to report except that uh, the time to reach ROSC was not different between the two. Uh, no significant difference, however, observed in neonatal mortality, brain injury, or other secondary outcomes. Um, and then in terms of the main safety outcome, which was mortality, they had 18% mortality in the sustained inflation compared to 57% in the conventional three-to-one group. 
Um, but I think this is something that again crossed my window and I was like, I'm going to read this, but yeah, so no real difference in that trial. Since we're talking about ventilation, um, I just wanted to mention a journal, an article in the journal of perinatology called peri-extubation settings in preterm neonates, a systematic review and meta-analysis. Everybody always asks, what are extubation, what, what are, what are extubatable settings, right? I mean, we've all had trainees. Mm -hmm. As a trainee, I ask that question. Many trainees wonder this exact... Don't we still ask that question between ourselves as yeah. attendings? And I think it's institution-dependent, yeah. it's protocolized, but this group decided to do a meta-analysis to look at what do the papers say when it comes to peri-extubation settings. And they looked for peer-review articles published in English, including observational and experimental designs. Uh, and... They followed the PRISMA guidelines and, and, and tried to look. They were able to find about 100 studies that met their criteria. And um, what's interesting is that um, they, uh, they publish in their different tables they, uh, the settings unconventional, on high frequency. And I think they're interesting. They're quite, in general, lower than I thought they would be. The, the rate, for example, at extubation for conventional ventilation is 11.3, which I would extubate at higher rates. Uh, the PEEP is 5. The PIP is 15. Um, and, that's, um, and that's 48 studies. Uh, and they have the number of studies, number of participants. So I think that's interesting. They also have high-frequency oscillation extubation setting. They also have the settings that people put babies on after ex extubation. So the mean uh, PEEP level for CPAP is usually about 7. Uh, if they put it on an IMV, then they're usually looking at a rate of 35 with a PIP of about 16 over 6. Um, so I think this was all very interesting. There's not much more to say. I don't know what you do with this data. I think every institution has usually thought carefully about what they like to do. But interesting that someone took on this challenge and, uh, and looked at that. So um, I thought this was interesting. Um, well, I mean, same thing. We were saying before that different groups of babies are different. And I it would be interesting to see it's, you know, really stratified by gestational age, because if you wanted to hot, hop into a hot topic on Twitter or X, uh, extubation in the first week of life, yeah, especially in the micropremie but, is you a know, hot there's, topic there's, right now. So why, why am I interested in this? You could say, well, I have very strict extubation settings that I follow. But the question is, I think as you get comfortable with anything, there's a creep. You're like, well, maybe, yeah. maybe I can extubate at a rate of 25. But it's kind of nice to have these kinds of tables published so that you can say, well, here's where the field really anchors itself based mm -hmm. on published evidence. And then- Where do I sit? Exactly. And, and I think it's okay to sit either uh, on more extreme ends of the spectrum, but then you know how far you're deviating <laughs> if you decide to- but extubate. closely. Closely. Ex exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, um, um, do, you want, do you want me to squeeze in one more? It was an interesting one that I, yeah? Or do you want okay, to do- Okay, fine. Yeah. Um, in the Journal of Perinatology, there's a there's a paper called The Imp Impact of Early Tracheostomy on Neurodevelopmental Outcomes mm -hmm. uh, in Infants with Severe BPD uh, and Exposed to Postnatal Steroids. So it's a very it's always a hot topic when you talk about tracheostomy and and um, tracheostomy and uh, BPD because no one knows when we should be doing it and so on and so forth. Um, now. The management of severe BPD is uh, something that people have a lot of questions. The incidence of tracheostomy ranges between 2 to 37% uh, in babies who are uh, suffering from severe BPD. And what's um, 
even so what's even more interesting is when do we do the tracheostomy early versus late so this is um a study that aimed to compare neurodevelopmental outcomes of preterm infants with severe BPD who received early or late tracheostomy, as well as those who did not receive a tracheostomy at all, focusing on the role of postnatal corticosteroid exposure. So this is a retrospective cohort study that analyzed uh, data from infants with severe BPD who underwent tracheostomy at level four, at level four NICU. Uh, the study uh, was divided. Uh, actually, I don't know if I mentioned the authors because I think that's important too. Uh, Ahmed Am- Amjad Taha, um, and this is coming from uh, Kansas City in the US. But what's interesting is that they divided them into three groups. Either you had no tracheostomy or they looked at early versus late, and they defined early versus late based on the number of 122 days. And that was what was referenced as early versus late in prior studies, which there are very few of. Um, Their decision to place a tracheostomy is not evidence-based or anything. It's a consensus recommendation by the multidisciplinary team, so they're not following anything specific. And then they looked at Bailey 3 at 2 to 3 years of age. So 137 infants were eligible, and they uh, 44 in the no tracheostomy group, 93 in the trach group, and then... uh, what they ended up doing is that after they applied exclusion criteria, they matched the babies and they had 28 in the no tracheostomy group, 21 in the early trach, 22 in the late trach. Um, so at 36 weeks postmenstrual age, most infants with early trach, most infants with early tracheostomy, 85%, half of the ones with late tra- tracheostomy, and a quarter of the ones who never really had a tracheostomy were actually on invasive mechanical ventilation which I think is very interesting because if at 36 weeks you're still intubated, I'm kind of a pessimist about what the outcomes are for these babies. But you find out that um, 25% actually never ended up needing a trach. Um, Now, in terms of neurodevelopmental outcome, I thought this was a retrospective study and that the kids who got the early trach were going to be biased towards poor outcomes because I'm like, if you trach them early, then they must be quite sick. And I was very surprised to see that the late tracheostomy group had lower total language median scores compared to the no trach or the early trach group. Similarly, the late trach group had significantly lower total cognitive median scores compared to no trach and early trach. And the late trach group had worse motor scores as well. And I'm like, this is fascinating because I thought the the retrospective nature of the study was, I read and I was like, this is going to be a doozy. It's going to tell me that those kids who had like the early trach were sicker and they had horrible Baileys Mm -hmm. and that was not the case. And then when they looked at the exposure to steroids, what was interesting and maybe is shining a bit of a light, I think that's what maybe the authors wanted to do on why this is happening. They found that the kids who received the late tracheostomy had the highest postnatal dexamethasone and cumulative hydrocortisone dose equivalent exposure, Mm -hmm. followed by the early trach group and then the no trach group. Um, The late tracheostomy group had the highest um, and the NT group and the no trach group, the lowest median cumulative postnatal corticosteroid dose in milligram of hydrocortisone equivalent. Um, and so maybe, maybe they get exposed to so much steroids and we still, I have a feel, I could see myself sometimes being hopeful that the kid who's going to get away with no trach still mm-hmm. doesn't get away with it. And maybe all the things that we do in between the time we could have potentially tricked them and the end up the actual trach itself could be harmful. Um, so I think this was a, a very, um, uh, a very interesting, uh, very interesting study. The conclusion are that in infants with severe BPD exposed to postnatal steroids, um, 
the ones who receive an early tracheostomy are is associated with better cognitive outcome and a trend towards improved language and motor outcomes compared to late tracheostomy. And that uh, the timing of trach in conjunction with corticosteroid exposure may have significant implication on neurodevelopmental outcomes. Obviously, it is still a retrospective study. Mm -hmm. The numbers are low. Um, but anytime I see something related to trach and timing, I read because there's just not enough evidence. Well, I think this is terrifying. <laughs> is all I have to say about that because, you know, we've all had that case where you're like, I think the kid can do it. I really think the kid can do it. I know, right? This is like always and the same we thing. And we just have to wait a little bit longer. And, you know, there's somebody in the group who's like, they probably just need one more round of steroids. And you're like, they probably don't need one more round of steroids if the other rounds of steroids didn't do the trick. You know, if you tell me, okay, weight gain, okay, fine, maturity, okay, but they probably don't need another round of steroids. That's one thing I think I'll take away. But, um, you know, we got to be pretty sure the kid's going to be able to do it or I that think, you have something yeah. new to offer. I think um, sometimes we get so uh, bogged down that we also interpret like an insignificant change as a yeah, major, like exactly. he was on 55% and he's now on 49% FIO2. And it's <laughs> like, right. yeah, this is, uh, you're far away from. Getting yeah, no, I, that's exactly right. And but maybe we it's invest, steroids. But, but we invest so much in these babies. Yeah, the slightest sure. improvement is something we want to hold on with. with but I think too, yeah. in the community, I'm just going to, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think people sometimes see trach as a failure and mm -hmm. it's not a failure. It is the necessary mode to get some children home safely and mm -hmm. get them where they can get optimal development and nurturing by their families at home and not mm -hmm. with us mm -hmm. in the NICU. So. Okay, I just had two uh, quick ones. Uh, this one caught my eye. Daily skin-to-skin -skin contact alters microbiota development in healthy full-term infants. It's in so the just journal. Like, just like me, when I see trach and timing, I read. If there's skin-to-skin -skin somewhere, Daphne is going to be like, I'm reading this one. Yeah. So this is in the Journal of Gut Microbes. I've never read an article in Gut Microbes before. Um, and uh, I thought this was interesting because in their, uh, what's it called, their um, background, they said this is the first report of uh, microbiome related to skin to skin. And I just wanted the community to know that I have a boatload of premature samples, stool samples, <laughs> Related to skin to skin exposure in a freezer somewhere, the University of Florida. So, if anybody wants to do this in the preemies, then we can chat about that. But um, basically, what they wanted to look at was they uh, randomized dyads to um, one hour of skin to skin care for five weeks versus routine care, whatever the family wanted to do. And as a reminder, these will full-term infants. These are not NICU patients. Um, in total, they had 315 samples. They took uh, 105 samples at week two of the intervention, 107 uh, samples at week five, and 103 at week 52. So again, the one-year follow-up I thought was pretty impressive, actually. Um, the baseline results, the skin-to-skin -skin care group did more skin-to-skin -skin care. That's not surprising. Um, they had an average of 2,067 minutes, plus or minus 850 minutes. The um, routine care, care as usual group had 308, um, plus or minus 442. This was statistically significant. And then they looked at some of these markers of uh, bacterial or microbiome diversity. So they looked at the alpha diversity, which 
for people who need a reminder, this is kind of the richness um, or number of taxa that is seen in 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 a, an average sample. And interestingly, um, they did not find that skin to skin care had any effect on alpha diversity. They did see differences in the tire cohort between kind of the early infancy period and the one year period. So that's an interesting um, scatter plot of of the samples. Um, and then they used uh, a permanova to look at the microbiota composition of the care as usual group and the skin to skin uh, group. And this was uh, showed that there was significant difference in the early infancy samples. Um, so that was statistically significant, but it was not statistically significant in the late infancy samples. They also looked at um, breastfeeding as a covariate. They thought that might certainly change the um, the, the microbiota, but the uh, effects uh, remained uh, significant and the effect size was unchanged. So this suggests that the skin to skin care had an effect on microbiota composition independent of its effects on breastfeeding duration. And then they looked at what uh, types of bacteria were there. And I think for the people who do a lot of microbiome research, they'll think this is interesting. So um, they detected a lower relative abundance of uh, Facilobacterium, Eubacterium, Holly, and Rothia, and a higher abundance of Flavonifractor, Lactobacillus, I got it, Bacterioides and Megasphera in the skin-to-skin group compared to the care-as-usual group. And there were differences in the genera between early and late infancy. They also looked at this measure of microbiota volatility, and this is defined as kind of the intra-individual change in microbiota composition over time. And in general, microbiota volatility is seen to be like elevated in certain disease processes, elevated in stressful situations. Um, and what they found was the volatility was lower in the skin-to-skin care group in early infancy um, as compared to the care-as-usual group. And the effect remained unchanged after including breastfeeding, again, suggesting that skin-to-skin care um, independently affects the early microbiome. Breastfeeding and gestational age uh, were negative, negatively related to volatility. And then they looked at microbiota age. So this is kind of a measure of the maturation of the microbiota. I don't know what to make of this. I think it's kind of interesting. Um, but really, it showed that the treatment group or the skin-to-skin care group was actually associated with a lower microbiota age um, with an average decrease of two, of 25 days at one year of age. After adding breastfeeding, the effect size decreased. So while breastfeeding was associated with lower microbiota age, which has been shown previously, um, it did change the effect for the skin-to-skin care. So anyways, I thought it was what'd interesting. What did you make of this? Because this is, so I'm going to say something. All these microbiome papers are flying way above my head. There's, there, this, is, this is very detailed. I would say, yeah. in general, there are happier bacteria. Some bacteria are happier, better for you than other bacteria. So you want more of the happy bacteria. And having uh, this richness or the uh, diversity is is a good thing. And I think the hope is that, like, say, for our preterm population, who's at risk for, say, something like neck, um, that if we can increase, if we can 
stabilize the microbiome, they're less likely to to have something like neck. And could skin to skin be a vehicle for doing that? Maybe. I don't know. Nobody's shown it yet. And and do you think that this paper moves the needle forward in terms of getting us to an answer? What do you? I mean, because there are some interesting findings that you presented. I think it moves the needle forward in that I hope people will be looking at skin to skin care in a different way. Um, I think that because their personal belief is that skin to skin care is dose dependent, and we haven't proven that anymore. You, you presented something like that as well on on uh, those almost dose dependent yeah. for skin to skin not too long ago. But because this paper is showing some interesting signals, maybe maybe mm-hmm. it's noise and we'll find out, but there's definitely yeah. some things that are happening. So I think, yeah. I think that's interesting. Um, what will that materialize to end up? Yeah. Um, we're getting close oh, to I the end. Oh, I have one more. I was going to say. Yeah, I was going to say. You, you said you had two. Uh, yeah, well, this one is really quick. It's another Cochrane review. Um, it is called Non-Pharmacologic Interventions for the Prevention of Pain During Endotracheal Suctioning in Ventilated Neonates. Um, this is coming to us out of Belgium. You know, it's a small, it's a small review, right? They included eight randomized controlled trials, which enrolled 386 infants. And they really used five of the eight studies included in this um, meta-analysis. So they were looking at three um, interventions, again, during endotracheal suctioning, um, and wanted to see those effects on the infant. They looked at facilitated tucking versus standard care. And I'll tell you what facilitated tucking is. So it's basically where you kind of hold the infant in this flexed posture. I like to think of it as like their intrauterine posture. You know, they're all kind of tucked tucked up. Um, so bent midline position of the legs. Um, you can do this on the back or lying on the side. Um, or even lying on their tummies, but they're just kind of in this contained. Um, I'm showing you with my hands, but the people can't see. <laughs> it basically means that you've held the baby from the top and the bottom, and that you have them in this tucked, flexed um, position. And so I think it goes back to the importance or the discussion in the community about two-person care or four-handed care. So somebody, two of the hands, are doing the work of the touch time, and two other hands are there just to be the advocate for the baby, basically. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to look at um, tucked, uh, facilitated tucking. They use something like familiar odor. Um, so like um, a scent cloth, for example. Mm. Um, and then they wanted to use, uh, look at white noise um, you know, from a noise machine. So unfortunately, familiar odor basically only was done in one study, but um, during endotracheal suctioning had little or no effect on the the PIP score, which is a pain scale, the premature infant pain profile score. It had no difference on the heart rate or or oxygen saturation during endotracheal suction. Okay. White noise during endotracheal suctioning had little to no effect on the PIP score, the pain score, um, heart rate, or oxygen saturation. And then they looked at facilitated tucking. So facilitated tucking probably has little to no effect during endotracheal suctioning on the heart rate, on the oxygen saturation, um, and on defensive behaviors. But it did result in an increase in self-regulatory behaviors during endotracheal suctioning, and it reduced um, the PIP scores, the premature infant pain profile scores during endotracheal suctioning. So. I thought this was just a good reminder to the community, including our community 
our NICU about why we are harping on about two-person cares. Yeah. And and it's something that uh, I initially looked at it. I glanced at the title when you put it in the folder. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking of endotracheal intubation. Mm. And and then I read the title again and I'm like, no, suctioning, which in my opinion shows my personal bias, which is that <laughs> I, I don't even, th- we don't even think don't about endotracheal. suctioning. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's uh, the, the respiratory therapist does it. If we have issues, we'll say, hey, how did you suction the baby not too long or recently? But yeah, it's uh, it's an intense procedure. And I think we think, oh, I mean, the babies must have secretions. I'm helping the baby. They'll feel better. But it's it's still an, it's still a procedure, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And some food for thought. Yeah. Yeah. All right, buddy. This was fun. We covered a lot of articles today. We did. We did. Yep. Well, go snuggle that little bug. <laughs> we'll see you soon. We'll see you guys soon. Um, uh, stay tuned this week for episode two of At the Bench. Mm-hmm. where Misty Good is being uh, interviewed. Um, so stay tuned for that and um, more interviews coming to you next week. Definitely. Thank you very much. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website, www.the-incubator.org. You can also message the show on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, at NICU Podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.